Hey there, everybody. This is Dan Fagilla here at Tech Emergence, where we talk about startup success in the domain of emerging technology. We've been talking a lot of B2B lately. Uh, there's a lot of startup companies uh, in the M-Tech space, whether it's robotics, M-Tech, genomics, uh, biotech, um, going directly after businesses. And today, I have a very prolific uh, business blogger, the author at WebEquity, as well as digital marketing consultant, Mr. Tom Pick himself. Tom, how are you? Fantastic. Glad, <laughs> indeed. Uh, and and uh, good to have you on board. I wanted to start off with your perspective on this because I've actually gotten some differing and relatively interesting ideas here about what B2B is and implies. So, oh, business to business. That means just marketing to businesses. Um, as For you, as, as someone who's an author and, and works in this field full-time, what does B2B really mean and imply for you in terms of a distinctly uh, different way of kind of doing, thinking, etc.? Uh, understanding the differences between uh, B2B or you know, B2C business to consumer marketing is, is first to think about the people doing the buying. Um, in B2B, obviously, you're selling more. You're, selling, you're still selling to individuals, but you're selling to individuals within the context of their work, rather within the context of their, of their personal life. So some of the, you know, the, the sort of the attributes that, that are typical of a B2B type purchase that are maybe different from something on the consumer side, first of all, yep. you tend to involve big dollars. Um, Tends to software systems, machinery, equipment, uh, um, you know, technology systems, and these are typically big ticket items. There, there really aren't a lot of you know, and there aren't a lot of small dollar decisions. Like a lot of the, the decisions you make in your consumer life are you know fairly low budget items. Yeah, buying ivory soap or something. Yeah, you know, you know flax or a shirt, whatever. Yep. Um, even uh, even you think of things think of things that are used in business that are small dollar items, you know, office supplies, pens and staplers and things like that. I mean, even those there's usually a big dollar contract behind them, which is to say, you know, not everybody within a big company runs out and buys a new stapler at the local office supply store when they need one. They've probably got some kind of contract in place uh, for the year with uh, you know with a supply company that's that's uh, supplying their organization. So even though it's a small item, it's part of a big dollar contract. But first of all, the dollars are big. Secondly, um, there are almost always multiple buyers involved. Yeah. On the consumer side, you know, I mean, unless it's something big like a house or a car where you know you get your significant other involved or whatnot, um, most of your decisions are individual. In the B2B world, that's rarely the case. There is usually uh, sort of a, uh, an internal champion who's going to be kind of the user of the system and that, you know, what that person's role is depends on obviously what kind of purchase it, it is, but it could be a manager, director, um, whatever, and any, any uh, sort of operational group within the, within a large company or government agency, whatnot. Um, and then you've got, you know, the people who need to approve it. You've got the finance people who need to look at it from a dollar standpoint. Depending kind of technology decision, you've got uh, CIO, CTO, IT director, whatever, yep. who needs to take a look at it and approve. Um, you've got the, you know, the higher up in the department who needs to approve it for, um, uh, for a, you know, a manager or, or someone making a purchase. So you've got a team that you're selling to, a group of people with different perspectives and, and, and different concerns you know, relative to a consumer kind of decision. Um, a third attribute that almost always involves competition. Again, in the consumer world, you might just uh, uh, decide you want to buy a certain item and you buy it and you don't. Again, because the dollars aren't as big, you're not necessarily doing a big uh, and you can't get fired from your life by buying the wrong soap bar either right yeah 
you can't get fired from life. So even if it is a bigger ticket, the consequences are, you know, at least in some respect, lower. Right. But in the B2B world, I mean, your boss is always going to say, you know, even if you come in and know exactly what you want, the boss is always going to say, well, what else are you looking at? Yep. Um, you know, it's just always got to be a, you know, some kind of comparison. Um, the buying process has got to be a bit more formal. Um, a, a, a final key, I don't want to go on with this forever, a final key differentiator is it, 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 B2B is more of an information-based decision. Uh, and I'll contrast it with something like uh, the consumer side, like Red Bull. You know, their marketing is based on entertainment, right? They, yep. they're, they're about all these extreme events, and they have all the content around these extreme sports and whatnot that kind of fits their brand image. Um, but it doesn't give you any information about the product. Um, and B2B, it's, it's much more um, a lot of information about what the product does, how it works, specifications, what it's compatible with. Uh, you know what you can do with it, so it's uh, yep. more of an information-based kind of sale, typically. We could say so, maybe rational, or, or just more based off the spec sheet, I guess. Well, I mean, there's still emotion involved. Of course, but it's uh, you know it, it's at a different level, and uh, even understand, you know, even recognize that there are emotions involved. Uh, you still got to provide these sort of uh, the objective kind of uh, quantitative, you know, factual kind of support. Uh, for why your product is, is the best for a particular application. So understanding that, um, the implications for a B2B marketer are you've always got to be prepared to differentiate your product. Uh, it's not Coke versus Pepsi is the comparison you usually use the consumer side. I mean, uh-huh. Some people like Coke, some people like Pepsi, but there's really no you know objective way to say, you know, for a, uh, a CEO in the such and such a market. Yeah, no, no way. Coke really is a better decision. You, know, <laughs> no. you can't do that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's more of a brand thing. But in, in the B2B world, though, you do have to be able to make that kind of differentiation and have some, some factual, rational basis for it. Um, you've got to have, again, because you're selling to groups, you've got to have information assets that target the needs of the different buyers uh, or the different buyers, approvers, whatever, who are going to be involved in the, in, in the process. Um, you have, on the B2B side, there's almost always type, there's some type of, again, there are some exceptions on the lower end for utility, software utility type products. But for any, any bigger ticket item, there's always some kind of live salesperson. And it may just be over the phone, but there is still, you know, a real individual that you're, you're talking to. Yep. Whereas uh, in the consumer side, that's often not the case unless you're, you know, buying a nice suit or something. Yep. Um, the, um, the media's different. Consumer marketing uses a lot of TV, radio, outdoor advertising. Yep. Um, you know, Shotgun. Bus benches, things like that. Um, B2B is, is much more, a lot of it's online. Um, search engine marketing, SEO, uh, utilizing the trade media. Yeah, trade media is definitely a differentiator for sure. Distinct as well, um, yep. And a, and, a, and a final, again, this is uh, more around big ticket items, but um, longer assets like white papers or ebooks, uh, again, are going to be more information based and those are going to be used a lot in the B2B world. Yeah. Plus, well, on the B2C side. Um, and, a, and, and finally, on the, on the B2B side, very often you're not actually, marketing isn't actually about making the 
final sale is more about generating leads because again you've got that usually that live sales force of some type and yep. that's actually going to close the deal so um, whereas uh, you know e-commerce consumer marketing is very much about getting the person to put something in their shopping cart and, you know click buy exactly uh, on the B2B side more often it's just about um, someone expressing an interest in the product so they become a lead they get into the you know Got it. Sorry, short question, long answer. No, I, I like it. It's a good checklist of differentiators right off the, the top of the head there. Um, one thing I wanted to drill down with before we go into the, the next question, which I think will be uh, some pretty actionable stuff as well, is in terms of that differentiating, you know, you mentioned it's not Coke and Pepsi. You know, you need something more succinct. You need something tangible. Would you recommend anybody selling B2B, any early stage company or other company that's going into uh, selling B2B, to really have a firm grasp on all of the alternatives to really have a firm grasp on, you know, where they're better, where they're not better. Not just have the spec sheet on their own thing dialed in, but to really have a firm conception of everything they're competing against, vertically, horizontally, etc., and 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 how they can still make their firm stand there. Is that kind of par for the course? And anybody who hasn't done that yet should already be jumping on that pony. We definitely need to be aware of the competition uh, because, again. One of the one of the attributes I mentioned to be doing marketing is there's always going to be competition. There's always, they're always going to be looking at something else. Um, so the um, yeah the, the startup or the you know, smaller company whatever definitely needs to understand what's out there and um, and to be able to differentiate their product in a way that's not um, um, disparaging in any way to the competition, but it's just you know we are uniquely suited for this market because you know and then. Um, have an understanding of what, you know, what the attributes are, what the uh, uh, capabilities of their product are that are unique, uh, what they enable people to do that's, that's, uh, that, that, that's unique. Is it um, you know, is ease of use consideration, a big consideration, uh, something that differentiates them? They're sort of, yeah, they need, to, they need to understand enough about their competitors' products to know what it is about their products that set them apart in the marketplace and give them a uniquely sort of defensible position. Got it. Okay. Um, and and my, my next question uh, goes as such. Uh, when a, a company is kind of um, initially maybe starting off their market, they, they don't already have a whole bunch of big whale clients that they're uh, pulling from on a regular basis, but they're, they're getting out in the B2B hunt here. Um, in terms of you know, nailing some of those initial bigger relationships and, and larger companies as uh, clients, um, what's some some practical advice you might have there for someone making that that leap to those kind of prospects? Great question. One of the key things, of course, is, is understanding the needs. You can't you, know, you, you can't sell to someone without understanding what it is that they need. Not very well, yeah. Um, it is, you know, so you may be in a startup or a very small company, but the point is you need to have some way to understand what the needs of that large, you know, prospective client are. Yep. So in other words, you need to have, you know, maybe a founder or an executive or someone, you know, as part of your company that has the big company experience. Um, so they have some understanding of those needs. Or you need to bring in, you know, somehow bring in a, uh, uh, like an advisory board member or, you know, someone into the company that understands those needs. And you see this a lot with, um, especially with younger founders, maybe haven't been out of school that long and are really smart, you know, technically and they can build a great product. Um, but they need to have, uh, you know, someone they can turn to who's 
a little older, been around the block, and have some of that, like I say, big company experience that can advise them and say, okay, you want to sell to, you know, XYZ Fortune 100 company, um, these are the kind of things that they're going to need, and then, you, know, you have to make sure that you, uh, you're meeting those needs um, within the big company. Got it. Uh, it, it's really helpful. Um, just following on that, it's really helpful if you got if you utilize your contact relationship somehow to get you know sort of a I'll say a beachhead established. If you can get one, two, three, maybe large companies, and even if you have to basically give away the product to the first few uh, of these to get uh, some larger companies using it, giving you feedback, and most importantly, being a reference yeah. that you can use those names to then, you know, go after the, the broader market. Um, social proof. It's, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, the the, uh, the social proof element there. I mean, obviously, there's the iteration and the testing component there, but but also, as you had mentioned, using those names to get other clients, you know, using those references to get other clients. The, you know, X Y Z company has already used our product and loves it. So that being kind of like the uh, again the the social proof social proof kind of component, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, because you're not, uh, you know, you don't have a large market budget at that point. Um, you've got to find other ways to, uh, you know, to do a couple of things. To, uh, um, I'll say, sort of on the on the, uh, um, oh, I don't know, the more public side and the more individual side. What I mean by that is, on the on the individual side, um, you need to actually, you know, you need to be getting. Uh, Meetings with, with people high up in yep. target companies that, that may be large and, and not particularly easy to penetrate. Um, so it helps there if you've either got you know uh, an influencer, you know somebody who's got a voice in the industry who can uh, make some introductions or maybe you know say some nice things to some of these people uh, about your product because they already have those relationships. Or if you you may uh, be able to partner with a large company. Um, I've seen this happen with, with some of my clients, and they're small companies, but they um, um, they create software that sort of extends the capabilities that of, of, of a, a product from you know an IBM, an HP, a CA, whatever you know, one of the big companies out yeah. there. And so they can often establish relationships with those big companies oh. uh, because they're not competing; they're building a product that, that you know is more complementary and extends those capabilities. And uh, those bigger companies, you know, generally already have those relationships, so they can they can introduce them on a, on a more one-to-one basis. On the more, I suppose, public kind of side of things, um, again, influencers are important because they can definitely get you know your word out there. Um, but then you know, just spreading the word about those early successes, those early you know, again, referenceable names. If you can get those few companies using the product, um, you, you can get the that sort of uh, uh, that word out there through like industry analysts, through you know basically PR kind of things with trade media. Not so much you know writing news releases. I mean, yeah, you can do that, and that's not a real big budget item. But really getting to know some of the uh, uh, the writers in the trade media who are in that space. And, and trade media trade media journalists generally don't. They're not you know thrilled about writing about a vendor saying hey, no. But if there's a customer story, and especially if it's a big name customer who's willing to talk, um, that's an interesting story. Then. Yep. 
case study functionality, something with some interest there. Right. So any, any way you can get the word out through those kinds of people, that extension reads without having to, you know, spend uh, huge dollars on advertising when you're, you know, when you're a startup and have a lot of dimension to run. And uh, in terms of, you know, you would mentioned kind of a beachhead. I think that's a pretty apt term here. Um, is, is uh, you know, in terms of getting those first folks on board, sometimes you would mentioned, you know, you might extend the um, functionality of a particular other companies or you, you might be complementary so you can find some kind of a uh, collaborative, um, you know, uh, stance with someone like that or, you know, really getting in with one of these analysts or something like that and then helping helping get the word out there with a cool client case study that, that it is of interest or is timely or what have you. Um, in terms of getting some of those first beach heads, um, what are what are some of your advice? I mean, you've, you've clearly helped companies do this and, and, and uh, have, have written about similar topics. Um, you know, a company's getting out there, they have a software, they have a service, what have you, and they're aiming to sell to bigger businesses, but they got to get those first big names on board or even those first little names on board, somebody using the thing. And they got to get somebody writing, right? And they got to get somebody writing because they need the word out. Out there it can't just be their blog that would be terrible so so they got to do that too is the main goal to you know create the hit list and then just test a whole bunch of approaches to just get one-on-one -on -one meetings I mean is it you know obviously that's that's the blood sweat and tears side of it and there, there's certainly a lot of that um, and then maybe do the same thing with writers or is there some kind of you know tactical or time-saving advice you might have about establishing those beachheads whether it's PR or first customers Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and, and marketing is much more effective after you've got some knowledge of the market. So really, those those first few uh, uh, sales are often often happen one of two ways. One is you know we call the the Rolodex sale, which is again either the either the founders of the company uh, you know have had some previous big company experience, so they've got some contacts that they can go back to, uh, or you're working with like I say a, a, a mentor who's someone more senior, a board member. Advisory, uh, kind of person, but but someone who you've got a close relationship with um, that also has some of these relationships and can make introductions for you, or like I say, your own. You know, I think got it. Yep. So if you've already got a few contacts that you can utilize, um, or you would need to go out and find, like I say, an influencer, um, maybe um, like like someone who runs a large group on LinkedIn that's in a particular Got it. So, finding someone like that, and uh, and you know, depending on the on the nature of the relationship, you may have to, um, you know, you may have to pay somebody. But uh, in transit cash is, is uh, you know, precious in startups. But that's uh, that's the law of the land. A wise use of early cash uh, because yep. it's not a, you know usually not a terribly big investment, and uh, the dividends and, and, and the uh, the assets that you get from that you, that you can capitalize on. Got it. And and would would you recommend? Uh, so it sounds like, and that's also practical advice. Get those first few case studies before you start making your PR focus, because it's going to give you the credit. It's going to you know give you 
uh, you know, the reason for someone to want to cover you in the first place. So kind of that order, I think, is proper because there's probably a lot of companies that create something they think is great. And before it's even really all that tested, they're trying to drum up a lot of noise about it before the bugs have been worked out or before anybody besides them can say how great it is. So it sounds like that order is important. And I think that's useful for anybody tuned in. Um, the other side of it is, is, you know, it really does sound like, again, you'd mentioned the Rolodex sale. Um, when it comes to getting those first people in the door, does it make sense? You know, if we're talking about a really big ticket item where, you know, you, you can't just get anybody to just say, hey, and, you know, try this little $37 a month thing. Um, if, if we're talking about something of, of more substantial value, does it make sense to create that hit list of, you know, the folks within your Rolodex or the hit list of maybe the big social media players with the followings or, or you know, uh, the... You know, even if they have to be cold contacts in that industry that you can force yourself into a meeting to into if you have to and just find a, a regimen, a method to, you know, rotate through those on a weekly basis and kind of continue. You know, you'd mentioned kind of the Rolodex sale. Is that often what it looks like when it's done well? There's obviously luck involved here. I understand that. But but you tell me. Well, you know, I, luck to a certain extent. To a certain extent, of course. About, um, it's about doing smart things again in a startup. You've got scarce resources. You don't, you know, you don't have the funds to go do some sort of big splashy thing. And that's, that's out of the gate, that that wouldn't be advisable anyway. What you, what you need to do is capitalize at first on your relationships. And um, I mean, another another avenue I mentioned that sort of the Rolodex sale, finding an influencer, um, a board member. Another avenue is. Uh, and LinkedIn's very good at this. You know, with the, the first, second, third level yes. contacts. Um, if you, yes, it's a great idea, as, as you put it, to put together that hit list. But say you, you know, you've got uh, on your hit list, uh, you know, uh, one of the, you know, some big Fortune 100 company, and you don't know anyone there, um, and you don't, uh, uh, you know, have an advisor who knows anyone there. You're trying to figure out how you're going to get in. Cold calling is going to be extremely difficult. Yeah. Take a look at your network and, and who. Uh, you know, use LinkedIn. Who are the other contacts of, of your contacts? Um, you might know someone who knows someone within that company or even, you know, third level knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. Um, but take advantage of, the, of uh, I should say take advantage of the <laughs> I know um, you mean. But, you know, you know what I mean. Yep. Yeah, um, utilize the, the relationships that you've got and say, hey, uh, uh, Daniel, you know, I, I, I realize that or I just noticed that, uh, you know, someone that has such and such um, Yep. Now, would you be willing to make an introduction for me? I've got a story I think they might be interested in. Um, and that's going to you know, get you a much warmer reception than just trying to call up that person out of blue and you know, then you're just a month on that or pitching them on something they've never heard of. Yeah. So you can kind of augment the general blood, sweat, tears, cold approach with some of these tools that, that kind of make that landing a little bit softer when it needs to be. Got it. Okay, very good. Mr. Tom, I know we went a, a little bit over time, but I think that's uh, some fantastic advice for the folks tuned in out there who want to be able to make that reach out, some uh, checklistable uh, things in terms of action steps. I very much appreciate you being on board today. If people want to learn more from you, I know uh, many people know the webiquity.com blog, which is where you write about B2B marketing. Um, yeah. Where else, if there's anywhere, does it make sense for folks to, to reach out to learn more? Oh, I'm everywhere, but <laughs> no, the... Uh... Yeah, the, the two most promising avenues, uh, A, definitely the blog, uh, Ubiquity with two Bs. Um, so it's being ubiquitous. Yep. Um, and on Twitter, Tom Peck, Got it. Bada bing. All right. Well, Mr. Tom, thank you very much for being with us today here at Tech Emergence.
Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>